the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're smashing the patriarchy with Kate Blanchett in Mrs. America, grabbing our guitar and jumping into the New York music scene with Apple's little voice and shaking our respective booties along with Stars Play's strip club drama, Pea Valley. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV podcast, a show that will have disappointed a great many of you last week when, despite all the promises made a week before, there wasn't even a mention of the modern television classic that is Warrior Nun. Well, a true Warrior Nun knows the value of patience and indeed embargoes, so stay tuned and you will at last be rewarded later in this very show. Warrior Nun! Joining me... (laughs) (laughs) is our own warrior nun but joining me on this week's show are two people who both had big announcements this week and first up someone whose autobiography finally landed on shelves on thursday an emotional often challenging account that charts a life story from early childhood to the universally admired person they've become today i refer of course to mr boyd hilton whose (laughs) tell-all memoir is even now being adapted for the stage by the great alan bennett so order your copy now of The History Boyd. <laughs> no, I, I jest. Of course I jest. Very good. It is in fact Terry, whose book was released last week, uh, except I'm not 100% sure how I pivot from the jovial, upbeat tone of this podcast to the subject matter of your book, Terry. This is, a, this is an act of contortion I think I'm kind of ill-suited to. Um, I will say, however, it is incredible. I have read it and I do encourage everyone to read it. Um, how do you feel now, Terry, that your book is out in the world? It, it feels quite exciting, actually. I thought it'd feel incredibly revealing and quite traumatic, um, uh, which is why everybody publishes a book, surely. So I, uh, it feels really weird, really surreal, amazing. Everyone's been so lovely, including some people who listen to this podcast who've contacted me to say they've either bought the book or read the book. Yeah, it's been lovely, really, really lovely. And um, it isn't actually an autobiography, it's a memoir. I should say. There I'm is sorry, what, what's, the, what's the genre distinction? Explain this to okay, me. Okay, so autobiography is essentially a story of someone's life in, it, okay. in its totality. Right. A memoir is a thematic retelling of an, a certain <laughs> thing in somebody's life. So it has more of a narrative shape, some may say, James Dyer. Oh, I see. I see. So a thematic retelling. Yes. That's, that's right. And people can, of course, find this in the comedy section of whatever their local <laughs> bookshop is. Is that right? Yeah, it'll be nestling right up against um, uh, Wild and Crazy Guys, Nick Pesemian's <laughs> book on, on American comedy heroes. Uh, yeah. Probably not. Probably no. not. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm number one in some questionable categories <laughs> on, on Amazon. I think one's like alcohol and drugs, one's like dysfunctional families. So if you look in any of those really dark categories on Amazon <laughs> that you can probably normally avoid, yeah, I'm, I'm killing it in those categories. <laughs> So it's so not a laugh right then. But I think no. I think anyone who listens to this podcast won't be disappointed because it is surprisingly on brand. Oh, yeah. So so the way that James constantly takes the piss out of me for only liking uh, miserable, traumatic, very emotionally and psychologically challenging stuff. Yeah. If you are also into all of those things. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, but let's not talk about my book. Nobody cares about my book. They care about telling. I'm enjoying James's interview with you about the book. Yeah. How does it compare to Woman's <laughs> Hour and um, Five Live, etc.? I literally just did gen- spoke with Jenny Murray on Woman's Hour immediately before recording this podcast. And um, Jenny's really hard questions in a soft voice. She's a remarkable <laughs> journalist. James is like... <laughs> 
weird open <laughs> questions in a loud posh voice. Yeah. What's a memoir? Yeah. Please explain this genre to me. Imagine if imagine if Jenny Murray had opened with that. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me the difference. Yeah. yeah. Did you explain the narrative tone to her? No. Was that uh, was that what the interview I was? Did, I didn't need to, James. Okay. I didn't need to. Okay, I've got a question for you about yes. your week. Okay. Uh, have we made any progress on the old axe? See, I very, very, I oh. considered giving you my uh, my rendition of Seven Nation Army, which I learned oh. this week, but I've decided not yes. to. Oh, <laughs> oh my yeah. God, you have no choice. Go on, go and get it. Come on. We're not continuing. Nobody wants to listen to me play the guitar again. Everybody wants to listen to this. There are Everybody people screaming does, yeah. at their bloody phone and yeah. laptop or whatever yeah. device they're listening to this podcast on. Go and get it. Right. I am not doing any of yeah. until the you fan base. Right. The cardboard yeah. box is coming the out. Here is out of the cardboard box. Don't worry, guys. The cardboard box yeah. is being oh, God, this is a terrible... I like the way... I thought for a minute James was going to pretend that the, the guitar was miles away, like another room, but no, it's no, just in the cardboard it's box. It's just in the cardboard box. So to get it out of the, the cardboard, cardboard box. box. Now, I need you to understand that I am not warmed up, therefore this could go terribly wrong. <clears throat> warmed up? Ready? Wow. You ready? Yeah. Oh, dear. I've hit wrong note already. I mean, I can recognise the go. tune. Can you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's vaguely recognisable. And can we clarify? You yeah. couldn't, you'd never played the guitar, you couldn't play the guitar before you bought this guitar in a fit no. of being middle-aged the other so week. T- two weeks ago, in a fit of mid-lockdown crisis, I bought a guitar. I have never played a guitar. I cannot play the guitar. Uh, this is this is my first, my first guitarage. So, you know. I'm, and are you I, I having can... lessons? Um, no, I'm following an online course, like an online. There's a there's a free thing. This guy called Justin Sandico. His website justinguitar.com. Oh my god! And I'm god. going through his beginners course, and I now know five chords, and you know that. Well, then, then in that case, I, wow. I suppose that was impressive. Yes, I'm an honorary white stripe. This is absolutely true. Um, but I see that. that see, I see what you did there. That whole thing, which is to get off this really awkward discussion about your book. But yes. I will just say, coming undone is on sale now. Please go and buy it and erase the memory of my guitar playing from your mind. Shall we move on now to what? we've been watching this week and i'd like to kick off very very quickly (laughs) because i got a number of people contacting me after last week's show now this is going to have a slight spoiler for the end of season one of hannah so if you haven't seen that and you plan to watch it do skip ahead um there was much discussion about oh is joel kinnaman in season two i don't understand is he not why is he not i can't understand why he literally dies graphically and visibly in the last episode of season one and i had entirely forgotten many people did point this out and i went back and rewatched it and they're absolutely right he dies in the back of a van they bury him in the ground so if you're ever wondering why he's not in season two it's because he's literally dead good do you know what i thought you were deliberately not i thought you were deliberately i thought you must have known that because you were banging on about having watched the whole thing i i knew he died i was like is he deliberately oh, to, honestly i was no. like it's deliberately avoiding that so as not to spoil no, it for people who it. haven't got to the that end wasn't it. I, was, I was bewildered I, at the time genuinely had no recollection of his death i remember them them leaving the wow. facility but completely no recollection that he died none 
I mean, they do mention that he's died in the first yeah, episode. I thought as they well. just kind of killed him off screen, like you know, like. Oh, no I thought reason. you were totally avoiding the spoiler. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, it was really weird. Yeah, no, it was just absolute stupidity. Anyway, it was absolute stupidity. Sorry about that. Um, okay. Yeah. So I Fine. watched. I watched that, Hannah. I've been pressing on with Luther. I have seen uh, now. I'm halfway through season two of Luther, uh, enjoying that a lot. And I also watched. And I'm not sure this technically counts for this podcast, but I have to say it anyway. I watched Hamilton. Now Hamilton dropped on. Friday on Disney Plus. I saw it early in the week because I had to review it for Empire Podcast. Um, and this was my first Hamill experience. Like I had never, I deliberately never listened to the soundtrack. I'd obviously never seen it on stage. Uh, and I had just listened to people bang on about this for years and just how amazing this thing is. And it's really, really good. Yeah. It's really, really good. Um, have you have you both have you both seen it? Have you yeah. seen the show? Boyd, have you seen it? Yeah. So it's just me. Okay, great. Yeah. But yes, yeah, it was. Got it. It's always it just It is you. literally just me. But it was it was absolutely magnificent. David Diggs is my god, and I loved every second of it. Oh, should we have a little sing song? Uh, yes. Let me just get <laughs> the guitar back out. Yeah. <laughs> Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. Yes. Just have it done. Just you wait. Just I mean, it's, you wait. It's like being there in the room where it happens. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it's 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 pretty epic. Isn't it weird that that John Bolton book, you know, the the, the kind of fascist right wing Republican <laughs> who's to be for having a go at John Trump, named the book after that song. It's so bizarre. Well, that song is inspired by the West Wing oh, yeah. boy. I don't know if you know that. There's a there's a bit where Sam Seaborn staffs yeah. to the president instead of Josh Lyman, and he talks does a speech about he needs to be in the room. He needs to be in the room where it all happens. And Lin-Manuel yeah. Miranda's a big yeah, West Wing fan. So there's lots of little West Wing threads that run through run through Hamilton. I enjoyed an awful lot. In fact, the West Wing Weekly podcast did a special on Hamilton and Lin-Manuel Miranda composed a West Wing rap, which I highly recommend anyone listen to because it's glorious. Um, but yes, I enjoyed, I enjoyed Hamilton a lot. Anyone who has Disney Plus should go and see that immediately. Uh, what have you guys been watching? I, okay, I have been watching... Um, last week we... We reviewed the Kemp's, which I think we all found um, hilariously mm. funny. Even James kind of quite liked it. So I've gone back to um, to uh, the creator of it, um, old stuff, Reese Thomas, mm. um, who kind of presents it and, and wrote it. And his his previous mo- big mockumentary series that he did for BBC Four was Brian Perm, A Life in Rock, and um, he also did then. Um, and basically, that is a spoof um, of mockumentaries of, of rock documentaries sorry with simon day he co-created with simon day and simon day plays this this kind of um faux rock star brian Pern, who's basically entire pretty much solidly based on peter gabriel so there's a whole prog rock genesis thing going on there's a whole he created world music and all of that thing um but there's three there's three series of three episodes each then there were two specials it's annoyingly i thought it would be all on bbc iplay but it's not it's all on amazon prime you have to pay for it annoyingly but it is absolutely brilliant and it's got that same completely stupid um they will make a joke about anything they will they will throw everything in slapstick wordplay puns unbelievable just just general silliness and it's got an incredible cast um as well as simon day it's got um paul whitehouse nigel havers uh peter graver pops up as himself in it vic reeves bob mortimer matt lucas anna maxwell martin um francis barber christopher eccleston saran jones it's incredible the people he gets just to do these brilliant little cameos in this absolutely hilarious uh, rock spoof documentary. So if you liked the Kemp's, and let's face it, if you don't like the Kemp's, then really 
you shouldn't be existing. You need to watch Brian Pern. Uh, find it on Amazon Prime. And I wanted to mention another thing. There's a show called Alex Brooker, Disability and Me, which went out before the Kemps. So last Sunday at nine o'clock on BBC Two, there was the Kemps at 10. And before that, Alex Brooker from The Last Leg, um, who's one of the three presenters of that show. Um, I also have to admit, he's he's goes on my Arsenal podcast quite regularly. He's a big Arsenal fan. But he did his own personal look at what his disability Meant, means to him from growing up as a childhood with it and as an adult and it's a really insightful it's still incredibly rare that disability is dealt with on mainstream television it's unbelievable how the extent to which it's still how rarely you see disabled people on television and a lot of that is addressed in the show as well as being very much his personal look at that and it's funny honest and he's just a brilliant guy so we should find that on iPlayer uh, so um I, I have been very busy this week doing various bits and bobs. Um, uh, so I haven't watched anything new, but I did rewatch entirely I May Destroy You, which we talked about last week and talked about how amazing it is. Um, and I, I gobbled up the first few episodes particularly quite quickly, and I wanted to go back and look at them again. And I'll tell you what, like... The more I know we talked about this last week, but fuck me, the more I watch the show and the more I re- revisit it, it just kind of flies up even higher in my estimation. What she has done is so radical um, and so new and fresh. And, you know, the way she pieces together those flashbacks and um, trauma. Oh, God, I just, there's no point repeating what we said last week, but if you enjoyed it, and you get to the end and you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. Go back and watch it for a second time because you will notice other bits of genius and other little details that you didn't notice before. And you will end it even more convinced that Michaela Cole is an absolute stone cold motherfucking genius and we should be very grateful to have her. Okay, great. Exciting. Well, let us move on now to not a listener question. And the only reason I say not a listener question because it is the time for Pilot TV's half year review when we assess what has been happening on the televisual landscape in 2020 so far uh so this will be hopefully by the time this podcast is up this should be live on the empire website under the pilot tv channel but we have run down we have the three of us have wrangled we have argued we have talked we have fought we've occasionally thrown things at each other but we have come up with a top 20 list of the TV shows of the year so far. So the top 20 shows I think you all should have watched thus far, and if not, then you should catch up on. So let's run down this list from the bottom all the way up to the top. And at number 20, we have the final season of Homeland. Now, I'm not going to say I'm solely responsible for this being on the list there. I don't think that's true. I think we all watched it, and I think we all thought it was very good. I think what stands out here, though, is that Homeland has kind of done a triumphant sort of last-minute steal, where a show that had been petering out and had vanished from the zeitgeist almost entirely has kind of come storming back in with an incredible final season, and one of, I think, one of the all-time great endings, like a perfect perfect ending to that show uh and i and i really think you know homeland they they stuck the landing properly so very very excited by the end of that show i think i think you're right it's all about i mean i really enjoyed the season um i think generally it was it was it was kind of um it did bring it all back but it's it's that final episode yeah it was very very good it was brilliant i like to think that the creator kind of knew he was always going to win that way i haven't i didn't read any interviews with him or anything, <laughs> it seems doubtful, doesn't it? <laughs> it's so perfect yeah but uh, yeah, yeah. It's had, it had its ups and downs it definitely had its ups and downs so i think the german season was very good as well um but it was one of those things where it had a really 
clear, very perfect first season. And then it almost felt like when they went into season two, they didn't really know what to do with the Brody character after that. And it's sort of meandered all over the place and really lost focus. But it, it did have strong points. And uh, as we said, the final season of that is definitely worth watching. So if you did drop out of Homeland, if you did not keep up with it, I would highly recommend going back, uh, picking up wherever you left off and watching, or oh, start again from the beginning. Uh, you know, you've got time. And, uh, and watch it all the way through. That is Homeland at number 20. And number 19, a new show, Apple TV Plus's Trying, which I think we all enjoyed quite a lot, actually. It was a very sort of sweet parenting comedy which dropped on dropped on that channel and while it is rare for me to to enjoy a comedy um yeah i i'm i'm pleased with this one yeah tonally i thought it was so it was it was brilliant it was utterly believable and authentic and it had i really like the fact that its version of london north london camden mm. basically where we all worked until uh we were locked down in our homes was it somehow managed to make it, it, it you know it, it visually it was great but it didn't it didn't it wasn't like a kind of glamorized version it felt like it was actually a real version of exactly what that bit of london is really like and the two of them weren't ultra privileged um middle class media types they were you know they had kind of real jobs and real struggles financially and all of that and i thought that was a really interesting yeah. choice for apple to make a kind of realist london comedy and it was really interesting to be taken through the process of adoption which i think is intrinsically interesting anyway the red mm. tape and what you have to go through i thought it was, I thought it was yeah, great. great little show that uh, that was trying at number 19 and number 18 for reasons i don't fully understand this country yes i mean should have been higher <laughs> Should have been higher. Yeah. yeah, why did we let him yeah. get away with putting it? Hang on. I don't know. This was in the top. Wasn't this in the top ten originally? No, absolutely not. Um, I mean, this is classic it's James. Ridiculous. There was yeah. a bit where hey, you yeah. both saw the list. And actually, I enjoyed the moment where you said, "I'm going to give you a list, and you guys can tell me if there's anything wrong with it." And I said, "Oh, James, would you like Terry and I to submit our own list?" And, we'll, and you were like, "Oh no, that's not necessary." Yeah. yeah, that was brilliant. I was like, okay, I'll see where this is I going. I was perfectly yeah. happy to welcome, to welcome new additions to the list. And you both had feedback into what should be moved around. It's not my fault if you missed this country. Well, so I mean, this country is amazing and does deserve to be in the top 10 um, and was a work of art. And Daisy May Cooper alone, I think, has been responsible for me getting through lockdown with her huh. incredible Instagram TikTok account and her... Uh, love affair with the sea captain um but yes this is <laughs> phenomenal british comedy at its finest and it should be higher yeah. death to james <laughs> <laughs> Too harsh. i mean it seems fair i didn't enjoy this but that's no. not a shock i thought you didn't you in the end I thought you, did, yeah. no. you weren't you weren't one no. round to it yeah i thought no. you were no, no. god you definitely that's said something incredible. about thinking god. it was okay I mean, when it's not the worst. It. I don't think it's bad by any stretch. It's just, it's, again, it's one of these things where Ugh. it's just not, you know, if I am, to use musical parlance, Terry, if I am an a E chord, <laughs> yes, <laughs> if, I'm an, if I'm a bell end chord, now, if I'm an E chord, this is an E minor. So it's just not really oh in tune God. with what I'm going for. <laughs> oh, my oh, my God. God. Wow. Oh, wow. my God. Music is going to wow. give you a whole new area of being a dick that we're going to have to navigate. Yeah. 100% true. 100% oh, incredible. Bullshit analogies and metaphors from James Dyer. At number 18, then, this country, which takes us to... Number 17, whereupon we will find the great. Terry, are you pleased about this? I am very pleased about this. I loved this. Um, and I think it's uh, properly funny, brilliant writing, incredible performances. 
Um, yeah, and I think that's in the right place. I actually, yeah. I'm now, I'm now staggered. That's above this country. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get over this one. Um, uh, no. Yeah, but I'm pleased-ish. <laughs> the great. Now, very, very good. Incredibly well written. Incredibly funny. Uh, yes, like that one a lot. At number sixteen, we have season two of Blood. Sophie Pezzle Channel Five drama. Any objections to this one? Should this have been higher, lower? Are you going to lampoon this on the list? Um, I might have had it a little bit higher, but um, I, it was. I think it's the best thing ever on Channel Four, basically Channel uh, Five. Sorry, yeah. Um, five. Yeah. Um, I think she just did a brilliant job of of having a completely different story, effectively with with the same within the same family and and the same characters, but shifting the emphasis, having another type of psychological kind of thriller thing going on. Um, great twists and turns and and and, and again I, t- I completely believed it. i think you, that's really hard to make a riveting five-part thriller that thrills and yet you believe in the characters and you believe in what they're saying you believe in their situations um i thought it was it was mm. great yeah definitely yeah i mean i think it's it's all down to sophie i have to say i think she's an incredible um talent and an incredible writer and i thought this was great and and as boyd says like far and away the greatest thing to ever be on on Channel 5. That is Blood at number 16. At number 15, HBO's Run. Yeah, I would I think I think Run slightly ran out of steam, I have to say. Um towards the end. Sorry, yeah. Um I thought it was gr- I really liked the first kind of three or four episodes and I did think it's sl- In fact, when Phoebe Waller-Bridge arrived and I and obviously she's amazing and brilliant, but her character was um, was interesting. But I thought the story became a little bit melodramatic. Mm. And um, and so yeah, I feel it's slightly a, a series of two halves. Still great. Still lots of loads of incredible things about it. But I might have put a couple of things in there apart, other than this. I would say. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's good, it's good that you're 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 feeling that back to me now on air, as opposed to what I said to <laughs> the list early on for your feedback. But it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. That was run. That was but let's face it, James. If I'd have said okay, if I'd have said to you, no, I, I demand shit's creek goes in instead of run, you probably just would have gone no. I no. excuse me. I was not being you know draconian about the list. I was perfectly willing to entertain your wrong opinions. Um, speaking of which, at number fourteen, yeah. unorthodox, which is the only thing on this list I haven't seen. Well, yeah. So this wasn't on the list. In initially and then when I um suggested it you sent me a very patronizing message about um, documentaries not being included which I then took great delight pointing out this is not a documentary there is a very good documentary which I believe is called This Is Us. Is that right Boyd? Um No Terry I, this is this is us is definitely not a documentary and that's an ongoing drama series. But there is a Netflix which is about the um Hasidic um community in New York, um, but this is the drama, um, which is a book adaptation. Everybody raves about this. We didn't review it the week it was released because of um, either a stupid embargo or it wasn't given to us or both of those <laughs> things, as is so often the case. But Boyd and I... Um, it wasn't given to us, yeah. Given to yeah. Us. Boyd and I watched it. just it. kind of arrived without much fanfare. Yeah, without much fanfare and yeah. Boyd and I watched it and loved it. I mean, everybody loved it. Um, the performance from Shira Haas, who plays a young woman who escapes uh, an unhappy marriage um, and the community in which she was raised, is just incredible. She is absolute dynamite. And there is a documentary series of the same name, which is what you must have been mistaking it for, I- James, called One of Us, which is also excellent, I have to say, but they are two different things. And maybe 
You should just watch this. <laughs> Genuinely, and I don't know what happened here. I remember you guys talking about this after it dropped, and maybe because I don't generally listen when either of you speak. But uh, I think, <laughs> I think, I, in my head, I just assumed it was a it was a documentary, which is why I didn't watch it. Otherwise, I absolutely would have done. But well, I'm you idi- really didn't listen, or no. apparently read anything else on the internet. No, because I'm, I'm an idiot. Everybody was watching it at at one point when it dropped. It was a massive mad um, massive word. <laughs> it's a massive massive word hit, guys. <laughs> it's just like every time. When you guys started talking about yeah, Tiger King, a- and all I hear is like, wah, 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 wah. you know, in peanuts when you hear the teacher talking. That's basically what goes through my head. Anyway, yeah. that takes us Clearly. from number 14 to, yeah. of course, number 13, where Curb Your Enthusiasm Lies, which is not a show that I love, but I know, Boyd, you do. Uh, and it is undeniably good. Yeah, I love this season. Um, we'd had, I think it was. It was a long wait. It was yeah, quite a few so. years um, that we had to wait. Um, um, I, I completely loved it. It was kind of even more, I would say, even more very heavily structured around quite intricate plotting and running jokes that went through all, you know, kind of all 10 episodes. The kind of base storyline was him opening a spite store of a coffee shop next to the coffee shop run by Mocha Joe, his sworn mortal enemy who he met years ago, first of all, and he criticised his scones and his coffee and they got into a big fight and the whole series was about him creating the coffee shop next door just to spite him and then that turned into a whole thing about different types of spite stores, I think in the penultimate episode. I just, I mean, I can't, yeah, I thought it was fabulous, fantastic and uh, we're going to be talking about it in TV news, of course. Well, I might as well say it now. It's been recommissioned for an 11th season, and I'm incredibly excited about that as well. My enthusiasm, unfortunately, is curbed for that show, but uh, never mind. That is Alan Partridge, that is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not our character, is it? Um, at number 12, no. though, we have Rufus Jones's Home, which I rewatched recently, uh, and just I love that show so much, I can't even begin to tell you. It is so funny and so heartwarming, and I love the fact that he walks that brilliant line between taking a quite serious issue but with a real real sort of warm-hearted lightness of touch like it's genuinely funny but it has moments of real poignancy to it you know especially when sammy goes to track it goes to bootle <laughs> to track down the guy who's dealing with his uh, asylum application and it's just uh, it's just it's just it is pure pure joy in little half hour nuggets and i love it yeah. yeah, no, completely great. No, incre- incredibly funny and yeah. moving. Yeah, it's fabulous. Just the, yeah. the some of the uh, greatest writing I think on um on telly this year, and he just moves so seamlessly between like proper laugh out loud dialogue, but also just incredibly moving um stuff as well. Just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So good. So good. That's home at number 12. At number 11, we had the second season of Sex Education. This is genuinely one of my favourite shows on TV, Sex Education. There's something about this show that I just think is delightful. And while I I, I think season one was maybe slightly more focused, I liked that season two here really gave uh, some of the other characters room to breathe. Specifically, I'm thinking Connor Swindles, uh, who plays Adam Groff in this, and obviously uh, Nikuti Gatwa, who plays Eric, who is the the delightful Eric. Um, but yeah, loads, loads of good stuff in this one. I really enjoyed season two of this, and I'm thrilled that they're actually moving ahead now with production of season three, because I think, as we said on a previous podcast, if season three of Set Education is delayed, I'm going to riot. And how they're going to do the scenes of intimacy in that. Yeah. Uh, is, is, is Glory holes, boy. Glory holes. Steady. Tell us more, James. <laughs> Steady, Glory holes. <laughs> I have to say, I wasn't expecting, of all things to happen in this episode, for James to be banging on about glory holes. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that takes us into the top 10. And at number 10, 
the one, the only, the inimitable Star Trek Picard. Now, I didn't want this on this list, but Terry insisted, so I felt that I kind of had to bow to that pressure and put this into the top 10. Star Trek Picard at number 10. It is magnificent, isn't it, Terry? (laughs) Didn't Didn't some critics have an issue with it? It kind of... Some of the episodes being a bit pointless and um, and not well, really. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, boy, that, of course, that isn't the great tradition of Star Trek, isn't it? You have to have filler episodes. Okay. Uh, no, I think that's a fair comment. But okay. there is certainly a bit like it starts with those three, the first three episodes, really tight, almost one complete story arc, yeah. incredibly propulsive, and they're on this urgent mission, and then they do. To a certain extent, tit about for a few episodes, not doing much of import. So, yeah, there is a slight dip in the middle. I mean, this whole season feels like mm. an extended setup to to what to, to what season two will be. But I thought it was great. I thought it was a great character study. I loved seeing that kind of elder statesman Jean-Luc Picard, uh, seeing the old characters back. I mean, it it very much stokes the nostalgia in you. Um, but I think it stands it stands on its own two feet as well. And I this and Discovery as well. I think they've done incredible work in updating a very sort of dated formula the traditional star trek formula for the kind of quote-unquote peak tv generation certainly for streaming uh and it, and it works really well so it's an updating of star trek i think it's a it's a master class it's great but yes it should come as no surprise to anyone that i love star trek picard yeah number 10 uh, then? yes number 10 boy number 10 sorry i know you wanted it higher i know you wanted it higher but unfortunately there were just too many <laughs> other things that had to go terry wanted it higher. <laughs> yeah, terry insisted but at number nine at number nine one that terry will not in any way object to i think which is may martin's feel Good. Oh, God. I mean, this, if this was going to be my personal list, this would be um, top five for me. It's just still, <laughs> it is one of the best things I've, um, I've seen. She is such a funny writer. My God, this is probably um, one of the shows in which I laughed out loud most, which I know is your barometer for success, James. Hmm. Um, and she is so moving. The Blackpool episode huh. of this show, which anyone who's watched it all the way through will know exactly what I'm talking about. That episode and the following episode are just two of the best episodes of telly. Um, I've watched the whole thing, I think, three times now in my slightly obsessive weird way that I do when I really like something. <sighs> I just think it's incredibly moving, incredibly mm. touching, incredibly graphic. You know, there's a whole scene with the strap on <laughs> that still like takes me by surprise when it pops out. Um, just, I just think she's brilliant. I think she's such a phenomenal, funny, moving writer. Um, if you haven't seen it, please do yourself a favour. She is amazing, but I think also props to Charlotte Ritchie, who I think plays the part of George phenomenally. Doesn't she just? Phenomenally. Uh, yeah, and Lisa Kudrow absolutely. as well, who's not in an awful lot, but is great as a kind of the toxic mother figure. Yeah, and her, you know, she that Blackpool episode yeah. is essentially all about that dynamic ghost between train, her and her ghost train. The ghost train. Uh, I mean, Did, you know, yeah. just that, that the ghost train piece is incredible. in and of itself <laughs> yeah. just wonderful. Yeah. Have you seen, have you seen the, um, I think it was on the variety, one of their variety um, things where Lisa Kudrow and Jennifer Aniston do a, do a thing together where they talk about Ostensibly, they're supposed to be talking about their favourite friends' memories, but they start talking about um, feel good. And Jennifer Aniston's banging on about how brilliant it is and how brilliant May Mart is. And I was like, I was so it was so brilliant to see them celebrating this. You know, obviously for Americans, I don't even know what channel it's on in, in the states, but quite fairly obscure mm. British show created by this great person. It was it was, it was amazing. Yeah, it's see. very very good. It's, just, it's funny though, isn't it? Because you know, while it is very funny and it is kind of a feel good show, it's not light and fluffy as that might imply i mean it actually deals with quite a lot of oh. stuff and it has its it covers quite a yeah. vast range of emotional topography i think it's a it's a magnificent show 
And there, there are moments of quite raw, mm. yeah, absolute raw insight very much into so. it. Yeah, it's, it's very yeah, much so. It's fantastic. That is feel good at number nine. At number eight, Ricky Gervais's Afterlife. Yeah, this. this I've watched this one yeah. multiple times. Yeah, this incredible thing about it. it there is something about certain. Obviously, particularly comedies, I think that 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 just make I don't know. Just there's something incredible, even though it is a, sh- a show ostensibly about mourning and grief and all of that, and it doesn't soft soap that in any way. But the ensemble of characters that he creates and the and the situations he puts them in, and just the, it's just something very pleasurable about being among that ensemble, you know. And, and I just love it. I've watched it repeatedly. I think it's incredible. Yeah, it it kind of on one hand it surprised me that it. it was quite mixed the response to it critically if not from from viewers i think and I, on one hand i'm quite mm. surprised because i think it's it's better actually than the first season but on the other hand when i was kind of i started watching a few of the early episodes again the other day and you realize there's the whole cunt gate um and you know it it goes to some um it goes to some quite extreme places as 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 Ricky Gervais's comedy often does. So I suppose on the other hand, it probably doesn't surprise me that much that it did have a more of a mixed response. Whereas I think we were all very, very warm on this. Mm, very much so. Yeah, it's. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's not to everyone's <laughs> taste. So if you're easily offended, uh, but it's a very very good show nonetheless. Afterlife then at number eight. At number seven, The Mandalorian. Uh, sorry, that's my Werner Herzog for you. Uh, yes, the Mandalorian. Sorry, at number seven. Um, <laughs> this, this, this was a show which was an interesting one. When I remember when I watched the first episode of the Mandalorian, and I was a little bit disappointed by it. Like it didn't really land for me. And it wasn't until episode two, that almost dialogue-free episode, where he takes on a transport full of ornery Jawas, that uh, I really kind of got on board with this. But by the time this got to the end, this was a really well-constructed show. I think tonally, it made a really interesting departure from the sort of traditional Star Wars films. Um, And he became a really interesting character in a way that, frankly, Boba Fett has never been. So, yes, I thought this was really, really good. I can't wait to see what they do with season two. They've got some great additions to the cast coming up. Um, And given that everyone seems to be a little bit, you know, meh on Star Wars post-Rise of Skywalker, I do think that this will keep the home fires burning well for that. I think Lucasfilm should be very, very pleased they have this. Um, it's a really, really good show. like that a lot. This is the way. I enjoyed it much more than I thought I was <laughs> High praise there from Boyd Hilton. Boyd's post a quote, yeah. I enjoyed this much more than I thought I would do. Yeah, so it's seventh though. That's too high. That's too high. <laughs> Yes, yes, Boyd. It's a, it's a shame you weren't able to feed into this list. I don't know, or, or give me your thoughts on it. <laughs> um, extraordinary, extraordinary. Right, at seven, The Mandalorian. At number six, Better Call Saul. Now we're talking, yeah. The show's so good that Chris Hewitt had to invade our <laughs> podcast to bang on about it because he's so obsessed with it. But, uh, yeah, it's quite, I mean, it, it's, it's a show that's got better and better and better, and it was pretty pretty damn good to start mm. with anyway um but as it closes as it gets closer to the breaking bad period it's now pretty much you know on on the on the edge of that era if you like in the story it just that just the everything about it, every episode is is like a one-off spectacularly filmed beautifully made 
um, movie. It's it is incredible. It feels like such a shame, isn't it? Because it's one of these things where it feels like this is like the greatest show no one's watching. Like Breaking Bad, which kind of got off to a slow start, and I think not that many people were tuning mm. into it when it first aired. Uh, certainly not until it started to get into its later season. This feels like another one where people started with it, maybe found the first season quite slow. I mean, I'm one of those people, and then maybe didn't keep up with it. I plan to binge this all the way through uh, and really get back into it. But this has been, you know, everyone who has seen it has acclaimed it, saying it's as good as, may even be better than Breaking Bad as a whole, which is which is no small claim. Yeah. It's definitely up there, definitely. Well, that is Better Call Saul at number six. As we enter the top five, I May Destroy You at number five. You see, I lobbied for this to be higher than it was originally, which is why it's at number five. And now, after re-watching it all again, I feel like I've made a mistake in not demanding it be higher. I mean, it's been an exceptional year for telly, we should say. Um, it's like a remarkable top ten. But this, the, the more time I spend with her work and her characters, um, just from the way she depicts London, the way she depicts friendships, like Boyd talked about last week, the way she so accurately depicts what it's like to be um, that age, um, what it does to your relationship, trying to discover who you are, bringing in loads of elements about cancel culture that makes it really relevant. Um, oh, it's just it's just so smart and so brilliant. Um, and I do think it's one of those shows that's really going to stand the test of time and will become a kind of new marker in British telly. Um, so, yeah. Probably not high enough. I'm desperately sorry to all those people who think we've put it too low. Um, it's fucking brilliant. <laughs> Terry there, a little bit lukewarm on I May Destroy You, but uh, it is very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it may end. I genuinely think, I mean, we're not, by the way, when we're questioning the, the order of the list, we're not having a go at you, James. We're just, we're just you know, have to do, if things change. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard yeah. to do this, to actually order things, because it's quite right. arbitrary. And, <laughs> but, you know, because these yeah. are all, these are all great shows. They are all great. And there are many great shows that yeah. didn't make the list as well. But in this case, because we are, I mean, I've seen up to 11 episodes, and I think they're deliberately not letting critics see the final episode, which is fair mm. enough. Um, and having seen up to 11, I, I now do think... Um, and rewatched quite a few of it as Terry has. That it's pro it could well be the the show of the yeah. couldn't it? I mean, it really could. And I, I agree in terms of like impact and originality of voice and um, just summing up kind of the way things are in so many ways. It, it may well end up being the the number one. So yeah, I mean, at the moment, I think you know, in top five, I think that's 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 fine. But it just, I think when we look, I think when we finish it and everyone's watched the whole thing, I think you may think it's, it's probably going to be the best. We'll have yeah. to see where we land at the end of the year when we do our final definitive review of 2020. That brings us into number four and Gangs of London, Gareth Evans' ultra-violent uh, sky action thriller drama thing. Action thriller drama thing. I think it is an action thriller drama thing. And... Um, Again, I loved this much more than I thought I was going to. I have to say, I think um, you know when I when it was announced, even even though he's a brilliant talent, obviously, and and the films he's made are fantastic action and masterpieces in a way. I just thought, oh, you know, a gang gangsters mm. in London, you know, whatever. But then you, as a viewing experience, it's been one of the most purely pleasurable things for me to watch. Uh, it's just I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it so much, and that fifth episode. 
which is an action masterpiece on its own, um, I think will go down as being probably, you know, one of the great single episodes mm. of TV. Um, but I enjoyed the whole thing and I, I thought the cast was great. Papa Esiedo, of course, who's also in I May Destroy You, what a year he's mm. had, absolute superstar. Um, Sope Derisa as well as the main mm, kind of um, action-y guy in the middle of it all. Brilliant, brilliant casting. Um and just, uh, just a, a proper like you know, this is a ten a ten hour epic movie. Um, that I know it's that's that is the cliche, but it really is the production values. I mean, fucking hell, it's it just is incredible. incredible. And as you say, episode five, I think you know, add another half an hour to that, and it's the best action movie of the year. So it's uh, it's an incredible mm. piece of, of of television. That really, really good show. And it's it's an odd thing, like you know, you look at this. Oh, it's an action thriller starring London gangsters based loosely on an old PSP game. Like it. It doesn't. It's a difficult right. to sell that. Do you know what I mean? Its its pedigree did yeah. not bode well, but it is incredibly good, and it's not just good because of the action. Like it contains some of the best action I think you'll ever see on television. But also, like it packs quite the emotional punch as well. It's quite the ride. There's a, a lot of stuff that goes in there. There's um, uh, Michelle Fairley. There's a particular scene with her which lasts involving a song oh, that lasts yeah. an episode, which is quite full on. But yeah, incredible. Gangs of London then on Sky at number four and number three. By Terry's insistence, <laughs> it's Alex Garland's devs. Terry, do you want to tell, talk us through your love for this show? Oh, God. I mean, to be fair to me, I gave this show so many cracks of the whip. I tried to watch it. Well, I did watch it three whole times. And whole. Whole times. And no, no, no. And, and no, 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 no. No, thank you. No, thanks. Devs at number three then. Go on, boy. Oh, I mean... I absolutely fucking love it, yeah. I think I've watched the whole thing wow. three times, I think, now. Um Pink boy. And just beautiful, yeah, beautiful. I mean, it look, I mean, just purely on production design and cinematography, it's the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful TV series ever made. Um, it has the OA thing. It's got the OA thing that I love where you just, it's addressing the biggest ideas literally in the universe. It's addressing, you know, fate and... Um, uh, just huge philosophical ideas in, in, in I found a very accessible way. Um, and just the ideas are mind blowing in it. And, but just, it's also incredibly riveting and gripping. Um, yeah, I absolutely love it. It is. Yeah. It's magnificent. And it is so stunning to look at. It is, as has been pointed out many times, not the most fast paced show in the world, but I mean, for Nick Offman's beard alone, it's absolutely hypnotic. Um, <laughs> I think it's great. You know, simulation theory abounds parallel world theory. There's lots to dig into. Um, but it, but I just think it's a really interesting emotional piece as well. Like looking at, uh, at her journey as she tries to sort of unpack what's happened to, uh, to, partner but i uh, yeah love devs thought it was fantastic sorry terry we can all agree however on the number two slot which is of course save me two lenny james follow-up to save me and oh my god this show is amazing isn't it i mean just remarkable absolutely remarkable still sits with me so powerfully months after we watched it um i think lenny james is just an absolute incredible creative force the characters he created um are like instantly iconic and not just nelly every single one of those really well-drawn messy complicated authentic mm supporting cast characters that he created they're all just phenomenal the writing is electric and real um and yeah i i will end i fully predict i will end this year still thinking this is one of the 
very, very best things um, that will have been on television. Just remarkable. Now I just want to go and watch yeah, it again. I'd... As soon as I started talking about it, I was like, oh my God, mm. what am I doing this weekend? It, it is incredible. And one of our one of our listeners <laughs> asked, uh, asked if we'd answer a question, what are our favourite scenes of the year so far? And I won't say any spoilers for Save Me, but there is a scene here uh, in, in Save Me where and in, when Lenny talks to us about it in the Save Me Spoiler Special, which is on the Empire Spoiler Specials channel, like he even tears up talking about performing this scene. Uh, and it's it is it is absolutely my scene of the year. I think it's I think it's it's a phenomenal piece of piece of television. But really, really great show. Save me too. I didn't think genuinely didn't expect that this would be able to top uh, series one because series one is very clear cut and self contained. Yeah. And I wasn't sure where he'd go from this. But it, this felt the opposite of when a show continues a really tight, simple story and doesn't really know where it's going and treads water and becomes sort of looser and more nebulous. And this was the opposite. It felt if anything more focused and more direct and. I think he did that really classic thing of not continuing the story for the sake of it, but continuing it because he had more story to tell. And that really, really shows in this genius show. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I, I, I agree that scene is the scene of the year. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And of course, it contains the greatest character, Fabio Melon Melanzola. <laughs> <laughs> Whose full yes. name is never, in fact, to the best of my knowledge, divulged in the show, but Melon's real name is Fabio. I will leave you with that. Yeah. And what I love is is yeah. how hilarious you find that and, and how you deliver it when he is one of the darkest, most <laughs> tragic characters that you're like, Hello, Melon, Melon, Which of course leaves us with the number one slot. And um I think people may not be surprised. Our number one slot is normal people. Terry may still be lobbying for I May Destroy You to be up uh, at number one, but for me, normal people is the television event of the year i devoured this entire show it made me feel all the feels and not just in places like i think this this is something where you you feel this show as much as watch it like you are so emotionally invested in this story from the beginnings when it's quite difficult and awkward their frustrations their complete inability to express themselves so you buy into this relationship hook line and sinker you don't there's no point where you feel detached from what they're going through sort of uh, narratively and emotionally and i think that's partly down to uh paul mescal and daisy edgar jones who played those roles incredibly like their on-screen chemistry is like nothing i've ever seen before uh but also it's just a beautifully raw and honest exploration of, of sort of young romance and i think you know it's very easy like to look at uh like the the recent comic relief stuff in Ireland where you had the uh which I'm sure you both saw which was uh Marianne and Connell in a in a confessional with the hot priest with Andrew Scott which is genuinely funny and then there was the older mm. normal people where you had uh, older actors playing them in their dotage and still being inarticulate and able to speak to each other. and I thought that was beautiful as well so they they're very aware of kind of like the the humorous side of this but when you actually watch the show you know while connell is unable to sort of get a sentence out you know it's inherently funny in and of itself like it's so tragic and it it really lands i think i think it's fabulous but i think you've really hit on something there right because in many respects like boyd was saying um i may destroy you has such originality and innovation and as a piece of original television i think is probably the it's the boldest thing we've seen mm. this year and the most original thing we've seen this year. Normal people, I don't believe, is doing anything particularly new. But what it is, is so beautifully crafted, so exceptionally done. And you don't watch this show logically or intellectually. <laughs> exactly what you said, you feel this show. I cannot remember being so 
consumed by a show in years where I had to sit and keep watching episode mm. after episode and to the exclusion of everything else. I couldn't think about anything else. Um, I was thinking about it when I went to bed. Um, it affected me and got under my skin in a way that the very best television 100%. does. And I still feel incredibly emotional about the show. And I find it hard to have irrational discussion yeah. about it because it got inside my head and my heart so much. And that I think is why it does deserve the number mm. one spot. So I think if we're if we're not talking about this as TV critics or whatever we are, and we're just talking about this as people who love telly, I haven't had a reaction to anything like the reaction I had to normal people. Yeah, and I think why the uh, comic relief sexy priest thing worked so well, and, and of course, I remember us talking about the fact that in TV news, we knew there were going to be these specials for comic relief. We didn't really know what they were, and we knew what the, a, a special guest star was going to pop up. We didn't know who that it was him. But then, of course, it makes total sense because actually the other couple we cared about this much was the sexy priest and Fleabag. And I think, you know, I remember – when that season two, series two of that show, you just absolutely felt like you were rooting for them. You were like, it was people you knew personally. They were so real and they're, and they're, you know, everything about them, you loved them so much. And they were, so, they were so right together, I think. And well, they won't, they stay together. And that had this, and I think this had that quality to it that you just absolutely passionately cared mm. about these two. And I've seen, you know, there are people who didn't like it. There are people who take the piss out of it. There, there are, you know, a lot of, it, you know, there was a little bit divisive into the, in, the, in the civil rights field. But it's an easy show to take the piss out of and, 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 yeah. and dismiss it as, as as being fairly formulaic and, and slow and quite serious and not that, you know, not, not much humor, et cetera. But, it actually, I think when when you do when you do get into it and you re and and it becomes part of you, it's like it it's it's it has an extraordinary power. Yeah, that is definitely but it's still expected, I guess, isn't it? Because it's not you don't necessarily approach this show intellectually. Like it either seizes hold of you or it doesn't. And I think people have very yeah. subjective emotional reactions to things. But I lived this show, and in a way, I genuinely can't yeah. remember any other show that has inhabited me to that extent i genuinely can't ever um but you know and it seems to and well i could say well that just me you know it's clearly not just me this is a reaction that a lot of people have had to it where it has really got under their skin don't you think there's um something about it that is snobbery though as well because i think it's it's essentially a romance yeah. and you know we're all able to kind of heap praise on things um that are a little bit more difficult or um seen as a little more, bit more high concept mm -hmm. and i definitely felt a lot of that guys i'm just going to be the one to say it that actually i think it's like really shit there, there was a mm -hmm. lot of um, yeah, totally, yeah. arched eyebrow snobbery going on about this not being kind of high art this not being high concept this is fucking brilliant telly. Mm. That's how we're judging this. This is absolutely exceptional telly. Your job when you're making telly, one would assume, is to connect with as many people as possible, to move as many people as possible. That's what the best storytelling does. And I hate that snobbery because if this was, you know, full of guns and, um, you know, had some bloody... Picard. Um, <laughs> if, if, this was, if this was genre, if this was genre, or, yeah. you know what I mean, then we would, th that conversation would not yeah. be happening. I think the fact that it is romance at the heart of mm. it and the complications of romance and a coming of age about teenagers, um, I think is, has led a lot of people to, to give it a 
uh, hard time unfairly. Yeah. I mean, look, arch snobbery is where I live, and I'm oh, having totally. none of it with this. Well, yeah. You know, I think this is yeah. this is magnificent. I do yeah. think you know you you're absolutely right. I think there's a sense that people think, oh, it's a story. It's like a little love story. Like it's trivial in some way. But but I don't think it is at all. I think it speaks to the very core of the human experience. Like it's incredibly raw and emotional and primal, and it speaks to kind of not only who we all were when we were that age, but who we all aspire to be. Like how many people yeah. in relationships looked at their kind of bland partner and went, fucking hell, why isn't my relationship like that? I mean, seriously. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget also, I think I agree about the snobbery and it is, you know, because it is it is a, a, a huge romantic epic, but it is also dealing with very interesting, like it's not, yeah. the, the talk, you know, when, it, when it's exploring the line between yeah. abuse and coercive control and sexuality and all of that and kink. Mm. And you, I mean, it's go, it goes to really daring, interesting places that you don't see. Remember, this show went out at nine o'clock, BBC One on a Monday night. I mean, that's, I mean, and it may well not have <laughs> intended to be until the lockdown and they ran out of shows <laughs> to show prime time. But what an incredible thing, I think, that it was a BBC One primetime show exploring really interesting with unflinch in an unflinching way, kind of edges of sexuality and what's acceptable and coercion and all of that, and, and it, brilliantly, really, and abuse, yeah. all of it. It was it was really brilliantly done. Normal people, then our number one of the year so far. We will be back with another list come December, encompassing the year as a whole, and we will see how things have changed then. But time now to get into this week's news. What has been happening in the world of television? Uh, Leslie Manville. <laughs> Let's talk about the, uh, the Crown. Yes. And Leslie Manville, which is one of the best things to happen since it was announced that Imelda Staunton was going to be in um, the crown as the queen. So she has been announced as being the new Princess Margaret, um, which is for series five. Obviously, we haven't yet had series four. It was finished before lockdown, I believe. Um, and they've completed post in lockdown. It should be on screens, they still think, this year, later this year. But she's obviously taken over from Helen Nobom. She's obviously taking over from Helena Bonham Carter, who was absolutely phenomenal. I'm really excited by this, A, because Leslie Manville is Leslie Manville, um, but also her incredible relationship with Imelda Staunton. I think their scenes together as the Queen and Princess Margaret will be absolutely phenomenal. What two brilliant powerhouses those women are. Yeah, very exciting, yeah. Because Princess Margaret is the is, – she's the – MVP of the whole thing. Isn't she? She's the re she's the really interesting character, <laughs> like all the way through. Um, absolutely incredible, maverick, bad lass. loose cannon. She's a bad lass. Bad lass. She's the bad lass in the royal family. Yeah, what a brilliant thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's like it's a bit of cast news. As, as soon as you see it, you're like, of course, yeah, you know, of course you would. Of course, it's got to be Leslie Manville. Yeah, just like, piling one great actor after another in that. Speaking show. of royalty, the great has been renewed for season two. Do you see this? No, which is obviously. Yeah. Great news, uh, and that will be uh, that will be coming back for a second season of that. Very pleased <laughs> to see that coming up. The thing that surprised me this week was a little teaser that went on social media, which I suspect will have gone over both of your heads. But um, the creators of Westworld, so uh, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, yeah. are adapting the Fallout game series into a show for Amazon. Um, now this is a it's a very big deal. It's a big big game franchise series from Bethesda uh, and it's kind of it's it's an interesting one because it's set in a post-apocalyptic post-nuclear war future I think it's in like 2077 um, but it's set in a vision of the future from the 1940s so it's a weird retro futuristic style where everything is kind of like um 
World's Fair type technologies, how they saw the future in the 40s, but the actual future version of this, as everyone comes out of these bunkers post in the sort of like uh, in and emerges into the wasteland that remains. What are you talking about? It's quite. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that this is not on your map, but it's got pit boys and weird mutant dogs and stuff in it, but it has a strange, slightly quirky, almost surreal sense of humor to it as well. It's a really odd thing to sum up tonally, but you know, everyone's in these sort of like blue and yellow jumpsuits as they come out of their vaults where they have weathered the nuclear fallout and they emerge into this 1940s vision of the future world um so yeah it's uh it's it's an odd one it's it's an odd one. i'm fascinated to see what they do with this i think a lot of this is going to hinge on tone because the games have a very specific uh a very specific tone to them but uh i don't know we'll see i don't imagine either of you're excited but but lisa joined jonathan nolan that's that's a pretty good uh, pretty good pedigree right there. What the people who've turned Westworld into a barely a barely bearable um, wow <laughs> yeah wow okay sorry okay sorry One point. all right Drag it was it. great in its early days Drag it. <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> dragging him is also part of cancel culture by the yeah. way I don't know what yeah. that means um, what is dragging him just for my um, own personal edification. So when somebody's like when so when Boyd um, claps back at you, um, what? Yeah. <laughs> what is this young person's parlance you seem to have adopted? It's very disconcerting. When, when Boyd like basically you say something and Boyd like shows you up and calls you out on it, that's called dragging. So like you know, yeah. um, drag him, drag him, Boyd. Oh my god, I don't know what you people are saying. Read him to filth. Drag him and read I mean, him to filth. I mean, that's something you've made up, but sure. No, that was there was a whole podcast when you were away where I know, Amon, I to it. woman, explained to me what... Read him to filth was. Read, read them to filth means. Yeah, I remember. And get the bag. Read them to filth and get the bag. Oh, my God. I feel like I'm in an East End gangster movie. Call out call out culture as well, yeah, which is another element of yeah. it, of course. Well, call out culture, of course. Yeah. This this TV show will be fallout culture, so it's, uh, it all works out quite well. <laughs> Whoa. Any other news? Yes, there's a very exciting project. Ava DuVernay yes. is teaming up with Colin Kaepernick, who is the man who made taking the knee, I mean, in this era, famous. He famously refused to stand for the national anthem, um, going to an incredible amount of shit from it for it, from both um, you know, the sports body itself and from the president of the United States slagging him off. And now, of course, he's become it's been retrospectively realized that he was absolutely I mean, a lot of people knew that he was a hero at the start, but now of course everyone's taking the knee and it's become um this extraordinary kind of cultural movement that he has been a part of and he is going to team up with Ava DuVernay um, to make a Netflix show about based on him him growing up and his um, early life so just the two of them working together I think this will be incredible not least because I've read a couple of really interesting articles in the American press about him and you know just the impact on his life and his career when he took the knee and his refusal to kind of not not take the knee and the NFL who have now kind of done an about turn on the whole thing were really harsh on him and he didn't play for a long time Um, it had a massive impact on his career and he suffered personally greatly for what he did Um, and I think we're in such a different place with it now but when you when you hear his story and presumably you know this will go into lots of different aspects of his life. Um, it's it's a really compelling, I'm sure, but difficult story. And I think Ava DuVernay is obviously, as we talk about a lot, just a, a, a phenomenal 
director and writer um, and, you know, create such brilliant telly, especially, I think. So I think this will be will be brilliant. And I think his, we'll learn a lot about kind of, I think, quite how hard things were for him during that entire thing and the pressure it put on his career and his life. Yeah, totally, yeah. It's a dream project and it's called Colin in Black and White and will be on and they'll, and they'll start making it on Netflix soon. Similarly yeah. worthy drama, uh, Star Trek Lower Decks has been announced for uh, an August <laughs> 6th debut on CBS All Access. You'd be surprised to hear I'm not all that bothered about this because um, it's a, it's an animated show and uh, it, it appears to be a trying some kind of humour and as you know, I do not believe Star Trek is any laughing matter. So uh, I don't know. I'm I'm in two minds about this one, but I'll watch it. I'll see how it goes. Um, that drops on CBS All Access in August, so that's exciting. Uh, what else has happened? Ozark has been renewed for a fourth and final season, an expanded fourth and final season on Netflix. So they've been ten episodes each up until now. The final season is going to be fourteen episodes, but split into two halves into two seven seven episode chunks so they're giving it an extended run for the final season and then have you have you watched this queeby princess bride thing no no you've not seen this no. so yeah i've so, heard about it yeah i haven't seen queeby's sort of then doing this thing with jason reitman for this it's like an ensemble recreation of the princess bride and sort of snippets of it were were, were out on on social media this week and it has Sophie Turner in it, Commons in it, Tiffany Haddish, Neil Patrick Harris. I mean, Hugh Jackman turns out, Andy Serkis, Keegan-Michael Keyes, AZ Beats is in it, Elijah Wood. I mean, so many good people in this. Taika Waititi, John Hamm, uh, Jack Black's in it too. It strikes me as a very odd thing. Like it, it, Like when you see the footage, it feels like, I guess kind of what it is, it feels like a people kind of, sending up something in a kind of lockdown parody but apparently that's not exactly what they're going for and uh, they haven't completely announced all of the cast members fred savage is reprising his role uh in this but uh yeah so this is this is an, an odd an odd queeby thing which i felt a little bit like some kind of weird hallucinogenic dream when i watched it but there you go anything else before we wrap up news i mentioned it before when we we're talking about kirby in the top 20 that it has been renewed yes, for 11th season yes which indeed, is brilliant it has. yeah uh, right, 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 right. That brings us on to this week's reviews. And first up this week, we have Little Voice, a show about an up-and-coming musician who, armed only with a guitar and a head full of dreams, makes it big and takes the world by storm. Little Voice, the James Dyer story, comes to Apple <laughs> TV Plus this week and may begin with three simple chords and a dreadful rendition of Seven Nation Army, but leads to far bigger and better things. Isn't that right, Boyd? <laughs> Kind of, yeah. This is an interesting. This is an interesting project. It is about. I think if if right now, as we're watching you in your um, house with your guitar by your side, if some beautiful woman walked in and you, you know, kind of, you just started having a meet cute and you were talking about your, and she was telling you how brilliant your art was, encouraging you to follow your soulful joy and love of music, and then you went to a bar and played your brilliant song, and everyone loved it and loved you. That would be akin to what this series is, which is a very interesting project. So it's got. Jay J.J. Abrams mm. involved, um, and it's got it's written and directed by Jesse Nelson, who's written a lot of um, who's written stage musicals. Sarah Bareilles is does uh, is does the music, and she's also an exec producer. Um, and it stars Brittany O'Grady as the main character, who's in her early twenties in New York, um, trying to make it as a singer songwriter, effectively. And um, uh, we meet her kind of she has we meet her, we meet her brother, who's obsessed with stage musicals. 
who's a really kind of sweet, interesting character. Um, Sean Teal from Skins, very handsome Sean Teal, British actor, meets her in the first few minutes, and you cl- clearly that romance kind of takes takes about thirty huh. seconds to develop very early on. It is. Partly, I would say, um, a love letter to New York, to use that slightly cliche phrase. And it was very interesting for me to watch this show in the same week that I read Terry's book, because <laughs> one of the in- very interesting things about Terry's book is that it's a part of it is about how the harsh reality of New York, and that in fact, that kind of the, the New York from the movies, when you actually have to live there and make your way, and you're living in a box flat with no windows, it can be incredibly oppressive and nightmarish. This is like the, it, it, this very much is the kind of, oh, it is the place you can make your dreams come true and it is wonderful and beautiful and cinematic and in the end I'm I'm in two minds about it I have to say part of me found a lot of it quite cloying and kind of um, sentimental and um, contrived and yet by the end of I watched two episodes by the end of the second episode I was like actually she's really likeable her family situation's interesting the supporting characters a lot of them are really likeable like the guy bar owner and they're weird tonally it's like it's described officially as a romantic comedy and it's not very <laughs> funny and yet it has these moments of quite sh- I mean it isn't but it has odd moments of kind of sharp dialogue where suddenly you realise this is first of all it feels like a young adult thing and then you realise it's not actually a young adult thing because there's references to getting blowjobs in the toilet and stuff and it's kind of a weird mishmash but I don't think I'm going to I don't think there's much in it that's going to drive me to watch it on a weekly basis at the top of my watch list but I didn't hate it and I didn't love it and I don't know necessarily know what to think of it is what I would say, annoyingly, perhaps. I could not get on with this show whatsoever. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and, we sh- and we should just say, you know, that, yes, I lived in New York. I had a very different experience. And I, you know, the, the, the New York as the city of dreams, the city of possibility, the city of opportunity, the city in whose hands you can become the person you were always destined to be. That narrative has obviously been told a million times in TV shows, in records, in books, in movies. Um, that isn't a new story. And that's not to say that story isn't valid because some of some great films and TV shows especially have been built around that very premise. This doesn't feel like that because it feels like all of the cliches you've ever heard about New York all rolled together and wrapped in sugar. So you do have these cinematic moments. There's a bit where she's walking across the bridge and, you know, um, the, as she's walking across the bridge, she's working out how to find her voice. There's this false stop public performance. There's this meet cute that boy describes in a, what do you call it? A lockup thingy garage. Mm. Um yeah. There's the really cute guy um who she has the meet cute with, um, who's just a little bit edgy enough and a little bit difficult, but really hot. Um, and she's lacking trying to find, I think they describe they describe the show, um, the publicity materials describe it as the search for your authentic voice. And nothing about the show feels <laughs> authentic to me. That is kind of one of the problems. So it is incredibly sentimental. And yet, weirdly, as Boyd says, suddenly they're swearing and talking about blowjobs and you feel like you've like switched the channel without realising it. And I think that they try to give it a bit of edge so it appeals to an adult audience. But it feels really young and really uncynical, but without much 
kind of substance. It doesn't feel like it has much storytelling substance at all. Um, as you say, she's likable, but you know, likable isn't necessarily what I look for in in a great TV character. Um, and I just I just found the thirty minutes kind of quite difficult to get through because. As I said, I don't think it's doing anything new. I don't think it's telling a new story in a new way. Um, and I found it incredibly disappointing, actually. Um, and I I can't really recommend it on any level. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's, it's <laughs> dreadful, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> no, I mean, Brittany O'Grady, to be fair, as Boyd said, yeah. is genuinely likable in this. And and actually, I think she's pretty, she's pretty good. Likeable? What the no, fucking no. fuck is likeable? <laughs> like, who cares about somebody being likeable? I do. Like, also, I do. It passes the bellend test. This is important to me. But what I'm going to say is, when I say she's likeable, is there's a point in this where she delivers what might be the most excruciating piece of onstage uh, address that I've ever seen. So much so that my friend shaman meant that I was crawling under the sofa and praying for a swift death to get out of it. Like, it was, ex- oh, it, it destroyed me. But she, she delivered it really well. And there's a sense she has a real sort of charm about her which i think worked in that but it's just nonsense and the meat cute was excruciating and i was just like what the hell is going on here uh no little voice not good but it is on apple tv plus dropping on friday right next up this week we have mrs america a miniseries taking us back to the 1970s and the struggle to pass the equal rights amendment in the u.s now this aired in the states back in april and sees kate blanchett as phyllis schlafly who led a backlash against the amendment but terry does this one have your vote? Right. The first thing to say about Mrs. America is that it's created by Davi Waller, um, who's obviously the Mad Men writer. Because all the way through watching this first episode, I was like, it looks and it feels like Mad Men. I think there will be um, automatic kind of parallels drawn. There has clearly been quite a lot of money cobbed at this show and you can feel the mm. money you can see the money i mean the way it's lit i spent 20 minutes talking to my boyfriend about how amazing it's lit <laughs> it is lit so beautifully. <laughs> the costumes are incredible the precision and the detail in this is remarkable it looks absolutely exquisite it feels so true to the period it's just done with such precision and such detail it's delightful and it is um directed by um ryan flack and anna bowden who obviously did captain marvel last year but are more traditionally known for kind of indie movies like mississippi grind who have great kind of um pedigree in terms of storytelling and in terms of drawing characters now the interesting thing about the main character who is played by kate blanchett is that she's, and I didn't realise this because I didn't read around the show beforehand and we should say she plays Phyllis Schlafly, who's essentially become this kind of poster girl for right-wing conservative America. So I didn't do any reading about this and and it hits you that, oh my God, Kate Blanchett is playing the bad guy, kind of, essentially, Mm. but she's also the main character. And what this explores is um, 1970s feminism and this kind of culture war that exists when um, they're trying to get the Equal Rights Act through um, and she is um, part of kind of Washington and she's, it's it's very much this, this tension between the conservative um, women in this, the much more kind of liberal feminists on the other side. And then 
really it's about the tension between Kate Blanchett's kind of what she's doing politically and publicly and kind of what's going on in her own personal life. It's this tension between the personal and the political. Now, the cast in this is astonishing, like absolutely astonishing. So as well as Kate Blanchett, you've got Rose Byrne, Uzi Adabar, Elizabeth Banks, like it is, oh, Tracy Ullman is in- incredible in this when she pops up, Sarah Paulson. It is absolutely a stellar, stellar, stellar cast. And Blanchett is the core character and she's fascinating because she is this incredibly bright, incredibly smart, incredibly driven in many respects woman, but who really believes in a lot of conservative ideals. So you have her in Washington, you know, sat in a meeting with these congressmen talking about missile strategy and then going home um, to see her husband and kind of having sex with him, even though she doesn't want to, who, by the way, is played impeccably by John Slattery. She has sex even though she doesn't want to because that was kind of the sexual politics of the time and that's what it was to be in a marriage at the time. And what it does really well is kind of set up this contradiction between what she's, how powerful she can be in one area of her life, but the fact that what she's lobbying for is essentially kind of curtailing women's rights and how that plays out in her own marriage. It is brilliant. I think it's the writing is great. I think it makes light work of a lot of the like knottier kind of arguably more boring stuff about policies and legislation all the stuff james that gets you really hot under the collar and i'm sure you loved it kind of deals with them i think in a really kind of accessible way she blanchette is just incredible so there are there are things she does with her face in this show which is just remarkable so when you see her in this meeting where she is made to take notes um because they send the secretary out of the room because no women can be in the room they allow her to stay but then they tell her to go and get a pen essentially and take notes during the meeting um there's the scene with her husband where she has sex with him there are these moments of kind of um a lot of microaggression really where she does this smile and it's almost like her face could snap in half. Her entire face goes tight and rigid. Um, and she, I think gives such an incredible physical performance as much as anything else. Um, she is an exec producer on it. Um, and I think she is, is phenomenal in this. I'll be interested in seeing how the rest of it kind of rolls out but i thought this was a really really strong opening episode i really enjoyed it yeah i've watched the first three and interestingly so it does this very interesting thing where even though finish Schlafly is the is essentially the main character if they're in the ensemble so she is the focus comes back to her throughout but um each episode also focuses on one of the other characters as well um, foregrounds and particularly. So the second episode, which I think you're going to love, is about Gloria Steinem and her mm. setting up of Ms. Magazine. And there's brilliant stuff about um, how to set up a, a feminist magazine and having to deal with bosses wh- who won't let her. For example, they, she wants to put a black woman on the cover and the bosses don't want her to put a black woman on the cover because they think that it, they think it'll affect sales. So that kind of thing is dealt with really interestingly. And the third episode is all about Shirley Chisholm, um, who was the first um, black congresswoman and presidential candidate, female presidential candidate. So she's foregrounded particularly in that episode. And um, all the kind of the racism of the situation is definitely explored um, in that. 
I, th- I have read some of the criticism. It's interesting because I think the defense is that the movement of the time was too white and it was dominated yeah. by these white women. And I think that, and I think that is valid. At, at the same time, because Phyllis Schlafly is essentially the main character we keep coming back to. And even in the homophobia, so her, she's got a, a gay son, which is which was again in real life her her, her eldest son was gay, and I think uh, it's dealt with that he feels he can't come out because of her clear homophobia. Um, so that's an that is an element of it. But because she is so three dimensional and real, and so as you say, brilliantly portrayed by Kate Blanchett. You do, you know, there is are elements of her that are oh my god, I'm using can use that word again, likable, <laughs> charming, and all of that. And I think it does possibly soft soap a little bit her the the racism element particularly. I think yeah. that is. I think I've read quite a few, and I'm only up to episode three, but yeah, that I think that does feel like a valid criticism. But separating that, just as a as a technical, as you say, the lighting, the cinematography, and this is a, interestingly, this series aired in America on FX on Hulu as devs did and it's becoming a real like seems to be becoming a real place in on in american television the place where really bold daring projects are given a vast amount of money and kudos to be made in the way that the creators want to make them and it feels like this is it's got that mad men quality to it just of kind of real just exploring these ideas in this moment in such depth so beautifully that i have to say i absolutely loved it um and I can't wait to watch the rest of mm. it. This is this is a really really good show. Um, I mean, I like it for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I'm 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 always here for a show that has smart people in a room talking very quickly about the minutiae of legislation. <laughs> uh, I, I I was very much there for that. But I think this more than anything else, like certainly watching the first episode, it made me quite sad. And I think partly it just made me sad because we're having the same conversations now that we were having then. And it just sometimes it kind of hits home how little progress we've often made in these areas. Um, but looking at this and watching the kind of the, the sort of different strands of feminism at that time as they converge and how those different schools of thought try to kind of uh, reconcile and define marriage and feminism and, and women's places in American society. And, you know, you know, ridiculous kind of knee-jerk overreactions like, all our daughters will be drafted for Vietnam. It's like, all right, calm down. Um, it brought to mind, there's an episode of The West Wing, actually, where, where Emily Proctor's character, Ainsley Hayes, she decries the Equal Rights Amendment. And it's, it's really interesting. And she was a really interesting character in that show because she used to put forward a sort of the Republican view, the conservative view on a lot of uh, liberal to- topics we for- take for granted. And she kind of takes the tack that Article 14 of the Constitution already protects women, which is a legitimate mm. position to take. But obviously what this show shows you is there was anything but equality, like John Snattery, who plays her husband in this, you know, they seem to have you know a, a relatively stable marriage, but he's controlling and his needs come first and everything that she wants and is is entirely secondary to him and he's happy to support her and her political aspirations on the assumption that she never actually wins anything and he doesn't then have his dinner on the table like it's it's really regressive and quite sad and there's that moment where she's in the room with a bunch of old white men and they ask her to take notes you know the assumption that as a woman she's got secretarial skills and she can just do that and it just there's something about it that rings so hollow that as someone who's clearly very smart and ambitious and has political aspirations and a bright political future all of that is being curtailed by the men around her while this part of her that's so indoctrinated by the patriarchy fights against her own emancipation from those restrictions and it just makes you want to throttle her but i think it's important to see the issue from that side and i kind of 
it's very easy for me as a sort of liberal 21st century person to, to look at these issues. But looking at it from that era and looking at it from a sort of a female conservative perspective, it's as fascinating as it is maddening and I think she plays that really well and I do think they've papered over perhaps a lot of the uglier parts of this story and there is a disclaimer at the beginning saying they've taken some dramatic license but I think were you to see Phyllis Schlafly perhaps as she more accurately was it would be very hard for her to then be the central character in the show and still maintain audience sympathy but um, yeah there's a lot to unpack here and I think there's a lot of education here there's a lot of interesting stuff but there's great performances and a lot of really genuinely great people in it as well it's got an incredible ensemble cast so um Yes, very, very good. Like this a lot. And we should say that Emma Sante's directed um, some of the episodes as well. Um, it's got really good. The the um, the writing directed team is, is incredible. And I think it reminds me of the debate around Bombshell. Um, you know, which was um, with Charlize Theron and playing Megan Kelly. Were they mm. kind of glossing over more problematic parts of her her character, especially again around race, to be able to show the conservative? Um, woman's perspective and you know there was lots of debates about is it is is there a need for a show that is at least partly fictionalized to be absolutely rigidly true to real life which I think you know I always have some sympathy for that argument but I also think if you are depicting somebody real who existed then there is also a responsibility to show the totality of their mm. character. But I think it's an interesting perspective because, you know, I'm much more comfortable with the second wave feminist perspective for sure. I'm like, oh, they're my people. <laughs> but but the, 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 as, exactly as you put it, which is she is building at, at the same time while she's, you know, thinking she's doing these things which make her independent um, using her intelligence. She's also creating a cage for herself. And that contradiction is, 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 explored really well and actually really delicately those scenes with her husband who isn't the worst guy in the world he's not you know he's not violent he's not all of these things we're we're used to seeing with quote-unquote mm. bad men and he's oppressive a bellend, men <laughs> he's a bad but it, it's all mm. the, it's the small stuff right oh yeah you can go for that meeting but you're not staying mm. overnight and as you say is happy for her to run for office as long as you know he's pretty sure she won't win and i thought all of that stuff was done with such a delicate touch and it is always a balance i think when you are depicting somebody who now with hindsight we see as being a truly problematic character who has done and stood for really terrible things at some point in their lives i think it's really challenging to be able to portray that person in a truthful way and it not be seen by some as either mm. too sympathetic um because you are they're showing her as a human being ultimately yeah. right which is which is what yeah. she is. But I, I think, you know, it's too easy to see these kind of characters are villains. Like, she's not a villain. She's All people are complicated, and her view was a complicated view. We might not necessarily agree with it, but that's not to say there isn't some, you know, virtue to, I'm sure, some of the things that she thought. And I think it's interesting seeing that kind of the death by a thousand cuts, all the little indignities being belittled by her husband, having, you know, James Marsden put his hands on her and help her, but really he wants something in exchange. And just these little things that women put up with them and what women put up with now, and it just I mean it's kind of exhausting watching it at times what she goes through and then to see her take all that on the chin and push through it and then work against her own agenda is it's complicated and interesting and maddening there's so much great stuff there's it, it's also a lot about activism as well and you know this group of women and the conflicts between them the stresses the different approaches you know like 
um, Gloria Steinem, you know, goes to Studio 54 and she's mingling with celebrities and she's, you know, having these lavish events where she's getting famous people involved. And then you've got, you know, kind of the much more straightforward people who just want to gather the mass movement together and get normal people out there. It's it's so interesting about that. Just as just to take this moment in history, mm. really, early 70s, second wave feminism and trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed, which, spoiler alert, they never did. Um is so interesting. I think it's such a brilliant idea um, for for a series. And I think it works so well. I wonder if in fifty years' time there's going to be a lavish nine part um, drama about you know the conflict between um, fe- in feminism between you know gender critical women yeah. and so called in heavy quotes turfs and all of that. I wonder if that's going to be the subject of a massive. It did, and it did actually it reminded me of of that when you said James about. Yeah. You know, the moment when she says, oh, well, they're already protected in the Constitution. It reminded me of some of the of the arguments we're seeing at the moment um, on gender lines. And it does. And it feels especially relevant, I think, in that sense. Yeah. Mm. Well, that is Mrs. America. And that airs on BBC Two beginning Wednesday, July the 8th at 9 p.m. Next up, we have Pea Valley, a drama focused on the performers at a strip club in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, created by Katori Hall and adapted from her stage production, Pussy Valley, this stars Brandy Evans, uh, Nico Annan, Elarica Johnson, among others. Uh, and like last year's Hustlers, brings a welcome female gaze to this particular subject. So who better to mansplain the show to all of us than Mr. Boyd <laughs> Hilton? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, wow. This is a this is a real. I mean, what another incredible project, really. So this is Katori Hall, who wrote. Um, I think the thing she's probably most famous for is writing the Tina Turner musical. Um, and as you say, this was started out as a, another play of her. She's a she's a very um, acclaimed and respected playwright. And this essentially, as you say, it stands for Pussy Valley. Is what the, really what the the name of the, of the show is set in a um, strip joint. Um, in the American South, and it basically is is a is a kind of part kind of hangout show where you get to know these women, and in a bit in a very similar way as you say um, that Hustlers did. I mean, it's such an obvious comparison, but I think the comparisons can mm. be valid because they do have a certain similarity of tone and obviously subject matter. Then, obviously, Hustlers goes into this real life kind of caper situation, but. Pussy Valley, P Valley, Pussy Valley. It's so, it's so kind of is this one woman's um, vision and explanation of what this world is like. Ordinary lives, women who um, end up being strippers, and of course, this is another fascinating debate that goes on within feminism of women who are kind of anti-sex work, if you like, who have big issues of sex work, and uh, and ones that don't, and ones that kind of, if you like. This is a very simplistic um, outline of it that you know champion the women who have to who end up in that position, and this just takes a look for me at the kind of reality of the situation. It shows you a world which obviously you know very few people are privy to of what it's actually like. Um, and what the different types of women that end up becoming strippers and why, you know, one of them has a very judgmental Christian mother who comes to see her and has a route with her in the car park afterwards. The whole th- place is run by a gender non-conforming uh, figure who is brilliantly played by Nico Anna and as you say, Uncle Clifford. Um, there are kind of like, it deals with, you know, 
toxic masculinity, but in a very interesting, nuanced way. There are scenes where you know where they the whole thing about you know not touching, which is a thing in every any any um, show or film you've ever seen that deals with stripping. Such a big thing. Obviously, the men aren't supposed to touch the women, but the women can effectively do what they want with the men. It's up to them. And then when that goes wrong, it becomes very tense and um, difficult and interesting. And so ideas of consent come into it then. And then there's a really and but it goes places you I was not expecting. So you know there's a this kind of cocky guy arrives who wants to be let in as into the in, as a VIP and what happens to him in the first episode is really interesting and unexpected I thought I thought this was pretty incredible really as just as a taking a world and showing it to you no holds barred um I mean there's a, a re- incredible amount of nudity but it has to be that way and it is written and directed every episode is directed by a woman it is absolutely created by women and yet unflinchingly depicts this world I mean Weirdly, I think you know some male viewers are going to get off on this. That has to be said, but I think you have to kind of separate that from the fact that it is showing you this place, this world, in a brilliantly honest, unflinching way. It manages way. the same trick that is managed with Hustlers, isn't it? That 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 sort of female gaze pervades, I think, the entire show where yeah. it doesn't feel salacious and it doesn't feel exploitative. Everything from the lighting to the camera angles to the way it's kind of set up, it, there's nothing that feels pervy about this. Uh, and I think that that's really important for the way she's trying to tell this story. Well, and I think I read something interesting with Katari Hall who basically talked about her interest in the athleticism mm. of these women as well as kind of the way they've been hypersexualized. Um, and there's an incredible scene actually, which is um, Brandy Evans who plays mm. Mercedes, who's kind of like the big dominant alpha, incredible um, uh, dancer. And she climbs huh. the pole in front of this crowd of people and they're throwing money everywhere. It's like a, it is a very Hustlers-esque moment. Apart from mm. at that point, they cut the sound of the crowd. And what you hear is her kind of athleticism, like grunting to drag herself up the pole, like yeah. her panting as you understand. It's a really intelligent way of showing the physical demands of this thing, of this you know way women make money, which has always just been dismissed as titillating and you know women who do it who who can't do anything else whereas in that moment without any dialogue or any exposition you fully understand how difficult and how demanding and what it takes physically from those women to be able Mm. to do that Um, and all of that comes through and we should just say you know that it's important I think that this isn't just about the female gaze you know it's the point of view of of black working class women and queer men pretty much exclusively. And um, Katari Hall spoke a lot about, you know, the history of hypersexualized images of black women. Um, and, you know, she wanted to show these women as they really are, but also be in service to those, I think she said, um, those who are marginalized and made to feel ashamed and dehumanized. And I think it does an incredible job of doing that. You've got this inc- incredible crew of people who you come to know really well, even in that first episode, who are all really interesting, have really rich lives. Um, And even when it's quite grim, you know, there's domestic violence clearly Mm. happening. As you said, there's like um, a Christian mother who clearly manipulates her child. There's there's some dark stuff in there as well, but it's not grim at all. You don't feel like that. And I have to say from a technical perspective, I found it fascinating. Like it's kind of noir at parts, but there's also like a weird naturalism um the way it's shot and the way it's lit i found really interesting it was it took me a while to adjust to i couldn't really i was like whoa (laughs) this isn't what 
I was expecting at all because when you mm. think of the way Hustlers was done, which was very slick, um, very cinematic, it was, you know, it's it's not quite like that at all. Um, and I found that really interesting. And I'll be really interested to see how each female director who comes along and does each episode kind of um, mixes it up. But I think this is a really rare thing in that it's a felt like a very real depiction of that world and that wider community without being overly sexualized without being overly grim and and all of those cliches about the kind of women that may work in in these clubs i think it's a really really mm. interesting thing and it's in so many respects not what that I was shot that you talk about or that scene i should say that you talk about when they do cut the sound and the music that's outstanding but another one i think is when alarica johnson first takes to the stage and you see her dancing and winning a competition on stage but it's intercut with these kind of ptsds flashes of an yeah. assault that she's suffered i couldn't work out whether it was just a one-off assault or whether it was domestic abuse that was ongoing because i haven't seen enough into it so i'm sure that will play out as it goes but it's really jarring and changes the whole tone of that it adds a real real sort of tragic streak to it but it's that understanding isn't it that you know what has taken her to this place what baggage is she carrying like you see all these sort of braying men hurling money and far from covering themselves in glory and looking at what she's had to go through to get to where she is uh where she's there i, I really like this i thought nico annan was outstanding as uncle clifford i thought he was delightful yeah, yeah mm, really brilliant. enjoyed that this, this is a, this is a really great show and i think exactly as you say like it's very easy to draw comparisons to hustlers and i, I don't think they're unfair i mean it feels like a very sort of first base comparison but there's a real sort of dna crossover here and it's a it's a fascinating look i think at not just this particular industry but as you say sort of like that sort of black working class perspective on this and that's sort of southern you know that it is set on the mississippi delta which is a very different yeah. different take from the hustlers look at things as well but uh yes this is uh it's very good indeed p valley uh which is on stars play uh and begins on sunday july the 12th finally finally this week the moment you've all been waiting for netflix's warrior none now okay so this dropped on the streaming service last thursday we weren't able to talk about it on the previous show due to an embargo however that has now lapsed and we can jump into this one with both feet so warrior nun is a show you will be shocked to hear about warrior nuns a secret order of ninjas in wimples who form the vatican's equivalent of seal team six taking down demons and keeping the forces of darkness at bay in short, the best TV show ever made. So uh, Alba Baptista stars in this as Ava. She's a quadriplegic orphan, because of course she is, who's dead as well. I should point that out too. Only for reasons that don't entirely matter, she is resurrected when the halo of an angel is implanted into her body and she comes back to life as a superpowered tool of divine retribution. Fuck yes. <laughs> So, so who who better to talk about this than than our very own militant mother superior, one Terry White? Terry, did you love this show? <laughs> oh my god, I love this so so much. I tell you what, I was thinking, you know what, this is going to be bluffy and happy, right? And that's fine. If that's not the greatest premise for a show, I don't know what is. But it's it's actually not. It's like it is Buffy, but it's also charmed. And it's Kill Bill. And it's Iron Man. And it's John Wick. And therefore, it is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I've seen quite a lot of people being quite lukewarm on it. Like, oh, blah, 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 blah. 
Ignore those people. This is like a no holds barred riot of absolute nonsense and fun. And I loved every minute of it. And this is what I'm going to be doing with my entire weekend. Um, so, so, as you say, the setup is amazing. Like, you know, she's dead. The only shot is she's with some dead in a body bag. And you're like, oh, she's dead in some fucking crypt. And then, yeah, the, the, the ninjas, the ninjas come in and one of them dying quite badly and you know the, the only way they can save the bloody what do you call it thing the thing the halo is she's it's they look around oh god what am i going to do with this oh put it in that dead body it's an amazing moment um I found <laughs> Albert Baptista completely mm. charming. Completely, likeable, completely Terry. charming. Very likable. Yes. <laughs> likeable. No, charming. 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 I said charming. So, yes, she is a quadriplegic Dead orphan. Dead quadriplegic orphan. Which you, which you find out in some quite like, questionable flashbacks um, where she's giving some non some shit. And... She is brilliant, and there is. I'm going to say there is a little bit of an annoying yeah, uh, voiceover narration. Monologue. It's quite irritating. It's oh, quite irritating, yeah. and it's not subtle. So, for example, <laughs> there is a bit where she says, um, uh, "She goes back to the orphanage uh, to see her pal." Oh, fucking and Diego! He goes, oh my god, you're alive. But he's far less shocked about her being alive than I would be if my friend was dead and resurrected. And she goes, uh, "The Catholics are a little bit twitchy about who gets resurrected." That's a good line. But oh no, she can't leave it there. She goes, unless they control the narrative. And I was like, dying. Yeah. This is not subtle. It is heavy of hand. But I tell you what it does. It brilliantly captures, as all of the shows I, I quoted before, especially Buffy, right? The brilliant thing about Buffy is it completely captured what it was to be a teenager and to be dealing with all these kind of both literal and metaphorical foes um, in your life as you do when you're a teenager. It captures all of that stuff about longing to be normal and different at the same time, to be unique, but to be accepted, to be protected, but to be controlled. Like all of that stuff that is, you know, these kind of shows are metaphors for it just gets that brilliantly. She is amazing. There's some pure comedy in there. She gets hit by a fucking van and then flies to the wall and is piecing bits of her body back together because obviously as well as superhuman strength, she's got regenerative abilities. Amazing soundtrack. Billie Eilish is in there. If you know, you were wondering about this show's references. It is, I just loved all of this and it is everything that I wanted it to be. I mean, <laughs> you are not fully in for a show called Warrior Nun. I don't honestly know what is wrong with you. There's an amazing kind of um, watcher guy. Well, essentially the watcher roles played by Father Vincent. Like it's got all of those things that you want. I'd, I'm not sure, you know, this has never been done before, but has it been done by nuns? No. <laughs> I I agree entirely. I was so here for this i can't even tell you i mean to be fair that it's not without its criticism it can be so earnest at times and but i really love that about shows like this like i've never had a problem with ridiculous ridiculous shows that take themselves incredibly seriously because i think you know what if you're gonna do it fucking just 
go for it. You know what I mean? And it really, really does. There's a there's a higher demon called a Turask that turns up. There are wraith demons. There's like there's a glowing divine metal called Divinium for fuck's sake. <laughs> I mean, it's just brilliant. It's like and it's like Hockey Almeida comes on and goes, if the demon takes the halo back to hell, hell will rise up and heaven will fall. And you're like, yes, come on, kill yeah. the demon. <laughs> I mean, fucking Diego was dreadful. Like the acting yeah. was shocking, but and there's a really sort of sinister shitty nun in it as well which i'm not sure what's going on with that and there's a bit after a nun dies where all the nuns go full tori amos on a piano and i was like what is happening (laughs) (laughs) but it's strangely compelling i've watched two and a half of these and i fully intend to watch all of them because i I have to know what happens like it's the don't you think like all of those shows right what it does because i think some of those shows do the supernatural stuff well and then they do the kind of teen drama stuff well mm. where she's going out and getting fucked and you know doing things she shouldn't and being drawn into the lure of having a normal life especially now she has legs that work there's an amazing dance floor scene <laughs> where everyone presumes she's shit-faced because she's like flinging herself around and she's just excited because her legs work again um and it balances those two things really well where you actually have a properly kind of interesting and and believable teenager live trying to live a teenage experience and then these mad bastard super natural things as well like they can so beautifully the order of the cruciform sword oh my god, oh my god. that was oh, incredible one thing you ever mentioned is very spanish like it's really it, like it is surprisingly it's spanish steeped in Sp- like half of it is like her dancing around in a club in malaga that i'm sure i've been to by the way <laughs> you know with graffiti on the walls where everyone, all the teenagers are wearing that stuff from desigual you know like um looking terrible terrible dress sense um and she's when she meets the 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 team of teenage criminals like um who are squatting in the most lavish villa ever i mean you mentioned that element of it it's got this whole like she just happens to stumble upon these beautiful people who live in this spectacular place just so they can have a really lavish place for them to for them to come back to and the great jc who's this guy she fancies and in the the narration is terrible. Let's just <laughs> yes, underline. She's going, oh, she's literally staring at his muscles and telling us how much she fancies him. It's not enough that she is clearly staring at his muscles and clearly fancies him. So that, but it is absolutely hilarious. I, I found it incredibly hilarious. And I know, and it, and the fact that it does take it so seriously and is so Spanish, weirdly Spanish, um, which that's the bit I wasn't expecting. I'm like, and why? It's created by British people, I think. Well, it's I quite mean, mystifying. I mean, even she, like, she's Portuguese. Yes. I mean, fair and, enough, I suppose. And the accents are all over the place. There yeah. are Americans, English, Spanish, yeah. Italians. There's no yeah. explanation as exactly. to why. It is absolutely all over the place. And, it, and, and of course, this, uh, years ago, if this had been five, ten years ago, I mean, obviously, Buffy was very well made for its time, but this is, this, you know, this might have been a fairly cheap and cheerful fair this is like again like lavish yeah. huge lavish production values and effects etc for what is a brilliantly preposterous story but I, I enjoyed it very much yeah i mean but i i the earnest i think james is right the earnest nature of this is everything right think yeah. about like how seriously buffy took itself and took all of that mythology yeah. and took yeah. buffy's interior life and i think you have to approach it with the straightest of faces because this done with its tongue in its cheek would be the worst thing ever oh god yeah oh, because of how seriously they're taking it it's like the greatest thing that's ever existed yeah and the priest um what's his name uh, uh father Vincent looks oh, yeah. exactly like Jurgen Klopp by the way the manager of Liverpool so that's weird 
Oh, Warrior Nun then, the greatest TV show ever made. Uh, <laughs> available now on Netflix. Now, we are running very, very long today. So, uh, boy, do you want to quickly run through the other things around? Because there was a lot of stuff we didn't review this week, wasn't there? Um, right, there is um, The Secret She Keeps. This is, a, I've seen this, this is a really weird Australian pregnancy thriller um, with Laura Carmichael out of uh, Downton Abbey. And the rest of the cast is Australian. She lives in Australia and she's pregnant and she's like a kind of working class young woman's pregnant. And then there's a really posh media couple who are having their third baby. And you don't quite know how it's all going to fit together, but she stands outside the house looking at them and looking quite weird and threatening and stalkerish. And um, it's quite, it's very interesting dealing with those topics, but it's quite clunky at the same time. But that's that's a big BBC One um, ongoing six-part drama that starts on Monday at today, if you like, at nine o'clock. Series two of There She Goes, which was a really good um, comedy with David Tennant and Jessica Hines about a couple bringing up a kid with learning disabilities. And that was brilliant. The first series went out on BBC Four and became a bit of a cult phenomenon. Now it's moved to BBC Two, starts on Thursday at 9.30. Stateless is, arrives on Netflix on Wednesday, the second Kate Blanchett net drama of the week that she co-created, which is set in a refugee centre in Australia and is about different uh, characters um, meeting up there and it tells their stories individually and then how they come together in this place. It's supposed to be really good, but I haven't seen it yet. And Get Shorty Season 3, which is one of the most underrated and underwatched shows of recent times with Chris O'Dowd. Absolutely brilliant um, um, kind of spun off from the film and the novel and is now in its own world. That's on Sky Atlantic Now TV on Thursday. And Season 2 of Nosferatu also oh, that, lands. Yeah, that as yeah, well. that lands on I mean, Tuesday uh, the 7th. That was terrible, yeah, but fine. <laughs> <laughs> right we probably i mean i'm not even sure we have to do i mean we could do super quick banshees if you want but we're gonna have to do them quite quite rapid more i'll do it very quickly all right so so okay so we're gonna do banshees super quick so on the stopwatch turbo banshee go boyd Right, this is. I'm very indebted to a guy who um, messaged me on Instagram, J Joshua H. He's called, and he reminded me of um, a show he wanted, Banshees, um, which is called um, Please Like Me. It's an Australian show created and by and starring Josh Thomas. It's about being a young gay guy um, in his um, town in Australia. He is a singular presence. Some people find him immensely irritating. I think he's really interesting, and it's also got um, Hannah Gadsby in it from season two, the brilliant um, um, comedian stand-up. And she plays a really interesting role from the second season on. There are four seasons in total, and it is really, really good, really original, really funny and daring, and it's all on Amazon Prime. Okay, what was it called, Boyd? Please Like Me. Please Like Me. Uh, I'm going to very quickly mention Brimstone, sort of spinning off from the warrior nun devilish mythology. This was a show that ran in the late 90s, I think it was 1998. It had one season, it was on Fox, it got cancelled. It had John Glover, Lionel Luther from Smallville, who we all love, as Satan. That's perfect casting and it starred peter horton as uh, ezekiel zeke stone and he's a police detective who goes to hell after he murders the guy who raped his wife and the devil basically there's been a there's been a jailbreak in hell so the devil sends him back to earth to bring back these souls there's something there's 113 souls have escaped from hell and so each week he has to track down one of these hell's escapees and send them back to hell and there's a whole mythology about powers like the longer you've been in hell the more supernatural powers you have 
Uh, but what's really fun about this is John Glover keeps popping up and genuinely hindering more than he helps at all times because, you know, he's the devil. Um, and it, it was really, really entertaining. Terry Polo turns up as a 4,000-year-old Canaanite priestess. And if for that alone, you should probably want to see this. But it's it was absolutely ridiculous. And I, I, I did enjoy this enormously. I was gutted when it got cancelled. But it is also utter nonsense. Terry, you should probably enjoy this. Is, this is a classic Wheatley police procedural, but with supernatural amazing. powers and demons. Yeah, yeah. It sounds amazing. Yeah, sadly, got cancelled, died. Anyway, that was Brimstone from 1998. Terry, what's yours? Uh, ben and Kate from 2012. It was starring a very young Dakota Johnson as Kate um, Nat Faxon as her brother Ben. Basically, they're raising her kids together because she had it young, couldn't cope, blah, 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 by Dana Fox, who did New Girls. It's on Amazon Prime uh, video. Watch it. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Excellent. That was Terry Spanshee. And that is it for this Warrior Nun themed episode of the Pilot TV podcast. We do hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, then as ever, we would appreciate a five star rating on Apple Podcasts along with a review, which can either address the show directly or indeed simply review Terry's accent, as the most recent reviewer did when they said, Suspicious accent alert. At least Terry has now confessed to her East Midlander status. Now the accent needs to be examined. Joe Guest. John Lukic, Fred Davis. These Chesterfieldians had Chesterfield accents. Maybe Terry was moved from her actual place of birth at a young age and is now under the Witness Protection Program. A claim that, of course, we cannot investigate lest the Chesterfield Mafia discover Terry's new identity. You can follow me, Boyd, and whoever is posing as Terry on social media at James C. Dyer, at Boyd Hilton, and at Terry underscore White. And don't forget to hit your nearest bookshop to pick up a copy of Terry's not autobiography. It's a memoir, don't you know? Uh, coming Undone, on sale now. All joking aside, it is absolutely incredible. I don't like to say nice things about Terry, but this destroyed me this book i think it's phenomenal you must read it uh we will be back next week to see Catherine langford kick all kinds of ass as the arthurian lady of the lake when she takes up excalibur for herself in netflix's cursed the only show on television that has even a slight potential of tearing me away from warrior nun until then though pilot out <laughs>